If you would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, we're going to pick back up where we left last week in chapter 12. John's lengthy account of the last week of Jesus' life. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 19. This is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. It's often a passage that is read and preached on for Palm Sunday. But I trust that it will be helpful and encouraging to us today in the middle of October. If you would please... Give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 12, beginning at verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, They came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Thus far the reading of Christ's holy word. Let's pray that the Lord would bless his word to us. Let's pray. O Lord Almighty, you are indeed the only true and living God. There is none like you. You are glorious in holiness, working wonders. And Lord, we ask this morning that you would fix our eyes on the Savior, that we would worship Him, that we would know Him truly even from your Word. And so we ask that you would open up your Word to us by the power of your Spirit. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are back now in the second half of the Gospel of John. You may recall that the first 
half of the Gospel of John is often called the Book of Signs. It's called the Book of Signs because Jesus has done miracles and signs to declare to the world who He is and what His work is. The second half of the Gospel is often called the Book of Glory. And that's because it deals with the last glorious week of our Savior, including His death, burial, and resurrection, His finished work of atonement for sin. In this second half of the Gospel, John continues to draw our eyes to the finishing work of the Savior. This is the last week of Jesus' life and ministry. And it's important for us to see. Last week showed us how Mary had anointed Jesus. It was a preview of his death that was to come. It was also a reminder that Jesus is king, as kings were anointed in those days. We will see King Jesus even more clearly today in this passage. It is a famous story. A feel-good story as Jesus comes to Jerusalem to the cheering of the crowd. But John wants us to see who our Savior is and to tell us what our response to Him should be. And so this morning I'd like us to begin as John sets the setting for this triumphal entry. To look at the context or the setting for this entry. And then secondly, we will see the royal entry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, we will see the responses of crowds to our Lord's entry into Jerusalem. First the setting, then the royal entry, and then the responses of the crowds. Let's begin then as John sets the stage for us, if you will. This is the time of the Passover feast. The Passover was coming, John has told us. And so what is happening in our text this morning is the Sunday before the Passover Sabbath. That's why these events are typically called Palm Sunday, because they occur the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday. Now, Passover was the greatest of the Jewish feasts. There were three feasts on which the Jews were expected to be in Jerusalem. Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. We've already seen earlier in this gospel that Tabernacles was the most festive of the three. It was a time of great celebration and plenty. Passover, on the other hand, was the most solemn festival. It recounted the exodus of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. It recounted the death of the Passover lamb and the price that was paid for the redemption of the people of Israel. And so in Jerusalem here, the crowds would have been enormous. The ancient historian Josephus estimates that more than two million people would come to Jerusalem during Passover. And at the Feast of Passover, one lamb would need to be slaughtered for each ten people. 
So if you do the math quickly on that, you will see not only are there a great number of people, there are an incredible number of lambs who will be slaughtered and cooked and feasted upon. Now even if these numbers are somewhat overestimated, as can often be the case with ancient historians, this still would have been an incredibly high number of people, especially in these days. Cities were not as populous as they are today. And so the city would have been built for a certain amount of people, and people would have come in from all over the country and swelled it to an incredible size. But this is not just any Passover. John tells us that Jesus was the center of attention. There was always a crowd at Passover, but this crowd was focused on Jesus. It was Jesus that they wanted to see. Look with me at verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came. They came to see Jesus. They had heard Jesus teach. They had seen him perform miracles. And of course, he had most recently raised Lazarus from the dead. It is clear that that story <coughs> had spread throughout the country. There was no denying it. Too many people had seen Lazarus dead and in the tomb. They knew he was dead for four days. They knew he was not asleep or sick. And now, Lazarus is walking around. And so they came and they also wanted, John tells us, to see Lazarus in person. They wanted to see what Jesus had done. Now we already know about the plot to kill Jesus. We saw that at the end of chapter 11. That the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees had plotted to kill Jesus. They believed they had to stop Jesus at any cost. They said to themselves, it's him or us. If we don't kill him, the Romans will come in and take away all our power. But now we hear that there's also a plot to kill Lazarus. We see this in verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Now this makes sense because Lazarus is a living testimony to the power and mercy of Jesus. You know, someone could say, I saw Jesus feed the 5,000. And someone else might say, well, I don't believe it. You're just exaggerating. And someone else could say, I saw Jesus walk on water. And they would say, no, nobody walks on water. You, he must have been on a log or something. You're misunderstanding it. But if someone says, I saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, and someone says, well, no, look, he's right over there. Go talk to him. Look what Jesus has done. And the leaders can't have this. But what's interesting is what had Lazarus done? What did he do to the Jewish leaders? Nothing. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, we read nothing about what Lazarus does. We don't read of Lazarus teaching or of 
taking actions or going to certain places. The only thing we know about Lazarus is what Jesus did for him. What a marvelous testimony to have. To be known eternally only by being a recipient of the grace of Christ. Do you see here how much the world hates Jesus? They are willing to kill and destroy just to hide His goodness and mercy. Don't be surprised when you see that in action today. Or when others don't want to hear your story about receiving the grace of Christ. They're invested in rejecting Jesus. Well, that brings us then to Jesus' royal entry. It's the Passover feast. There's a large crowd there. They're gathered to see Jesus and Lazarus. And Jesus takes some actions that are deliberate and in control. Now, to an outside observer, this scene might look like chaos and confusion. After all, the Jews are plotting. The crowd is jostling. The Passover is coming. If this were a movie, we would wonder how the plot would work out. Because you know that's how a movie grips you, right? They make it seem like it's an impossible long shot for good to triumph. Everything bad is happening all at once. And we wonder how possibly the hero could succeed. That's the picture we might have. Behind the scenes here, Satan is manipulating people like Judas to destroy Jesus. We might come here to this scene and think that good is hanging by a thread. That's exactly what it would look like if it was a movie. Can Jesus do this? Will they get him? Can he manage to succeed in time? Will Lazarus live? But you see, Jesus knows everything here. He's in complete control. He's actually been telling his disciples what will happen all this time. He has told them that this is the time. If we go back to Matthew chapter 20, just before Jesus comes to Jerusalem, we read this. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. When we read that, it's actually shocking that his disciples didn't get it. They don't know that this is coming seemingly, even though Jesus has told them over and over again exactly what would happen. Even the smallest details of what is going on have Jesus in control of them. Jesus arranged the place for them to have the Passover. He merely sent word and it was prepared for them. And in the other Gospels, we read about the arrangements for the donkey that Jesus was to ride. 
So Jesus is in control, not just of the big picture, but of every little detail. And the crowd here is ready for Jesus. Look with me at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so here we can see why the Pharisees and the Sadducees were scared. The crowd meets Jesus as he is coming in. And they are excited. They are waving palm branches. They are shouting to him. Now, this is an interesting detail that John gives to us. This account is one of the few accounts that occurs in every one of the four Gospels. And in each one of the Gospels, there is a slightly different detailed account so that we get certain details from certain writers and we bring them together into one harmony to get the full picture. And John does not give us as much detail as Matthew or Luke or even Mark, but he does give us this one little detail that the branches that they waved were palms. He says it specifically. The other three don't. So that means John wants us to see something here in that. Why is this important? You see, when we think about palm branches, we think about a spectacle. We think about handing them out to children and then running around the church, waving them, flagging each other down with them, having a good time and fun with them. Kids love to wave the palms, don't they? But palms weren't used at Passover. That's an interesting thing. Palms were a part of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. So why are they here in the Passover celebration? I think we have to go to an extra biblical history to understand. Not that... The inspired Bible is insufficient, but I think John is making a point that he assumes we know certain history. About 150 years ago, before this date, the great Jewish leader, Simon Maccabeus, defeated the Syrians and drove them out of Jerusalem. He restored the temple that they had desecrated. It was the greatest military victory in Israel since the time of David. Israel was once again free. They were not under a foreign oppressor. And when Simon returned from that victory, he was greeted by a crowd waving, you guessed it, palms. And this became then a symbol of freedom for Israel, of military power and might. Jewish rebels made coins to celebrate themselves and any victories they might have over their oppressors. And on those coins were inscribed palm branches. It was a symbol of the conquering Messiah. And so what we see here is the Jews in this crowd are excited to see Jesus. What they wanted was a political savior. They're greeting Jesus with waving palms. This would not be unlike a political rally where the leader is greeted by waving American flags. That's what the Jews are thinking here. 
They see Jesus as the one who will free them from Rome. They'll bring, he'll bring back Israel's glory. They are certain that the time is at hand and that Israel will once again rule the day and the Romans will be thrust out. They are ready to stand behind Jesus and to see him victorious. And we also hear it in their cries. In verse 13, they cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, when we hear that, we think about Jesus' kingship and who he is. But actually, what the crowd is doing is they are quoting a biblical reference. They're actually quoting from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. The psalm goes like this. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And this became like a rallying cry for the people of God. If we were to think of an analogy, this was their star-spangled banner. Or America the Beautiful. This was God save the king in the United Kingdom. This psalm was a reminder to them of the victory that God would give them over their oppressors. Now I want you to notice also that they add a detail that's not found in Psalm 118. They end their cry with, even the king of Israel. So what we see here is basically a political rally for Jesus. So how does Jesus respond? What we see is remarkable. You'll notice that Jesus doesn't stop them. We might have expected that. Because over and over again in the Gospels, that's what Jesus does. He heals someone and he tells them not to tell others. He teaches and he says, do not spread the word on this. And he does this over and over again. And you'll remember why he does this. Every time he says, do not tell of this because now is not my time. That's the refrain over and over again. It's not my time. I'm not going public with this because it's not my time. He tells others not to say things. He withdraws to a place of solitude. Every time the crowds come after him and they want to make him the king, he withdraws and he says, now is not my time. But now, Jesus is content to let them declare him as king. Why does he do this? Well, it's not because he agrees with their idea of what a king is. Even if we didn't have the evidence that we do have over and over and over again in the Gospels, that Jesus rejects the idea of a political king. Luke records for us, as Jesus comes into the city, that he wept for the city. He knew they had the wrong ideas in their hearts and in their minds. And Luke records Jesus saying this, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus declares that this is the time. 
all of Jesus' work and ministry has built up to this week. He did not come primarily to heal and to teach. He came to suffer and die. Without Jesus' atoning work for sin, nothing else has any meaning. It is only by Jesus taking our place and bearing our sin that we can have any hope at all. Otherwise, death is forever. And there is no hope. We may as well distract ourselves and try not to think about God or eternity or judgment. And so Jesus makes sure that the eyes of all Israel are on him now. His work is neither hidden nor obscure. No one can say that they were unaware. Jesus made sure they were aware of his claim. Don't try to pretend that you don't know about the problems of life and your need for hope. You see it all around you. And Jesus has put himself right before your eyes. Even today. You may not have been there on that day, but God the Holy Spirit ensured that John recorded it for you. You've heard it this morning. The question is, will you believe? Will you trust Jesus with your life and your eternal soul? There's another thing that Jesus does that's important. John summarizes it in verse 14. The other Gospels give more detail, but John writes, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Now, up until this point, you have to picture the scene. Jesus is walking. He is walking toward Jerusalem. But he had prepared a donkey for his entrance into the city. As he comes up to the height and is going to descend into the city, he mounts the donkey. Now, this was deliberate. Jesus had instructed his disciples to find the donkey and to tell its owner, the Lord has need of it. And so Jesus mounts this donkey and he wants to show Israel the kind of king he really is. John reminds us, as the other gospel writers do, that in doing this, Jesus fulfilled a prophecy in Zechariah. But again, we need to picture the scene. This crowd of people wanted a warrior king who would come and defeat their enemies. But Jesus didn't enter on a war horse. He chose a humbler animal, a donkey. Now, the donkey was not a despised animal as we might think of it. It was actually a royal animal. David rode a donkey. Solomon rode a donkey. But the picture here is of a king of peace, not a king of war. And the rest of Zechariah 9 Verse 9 shows us the kind of king that Jesus is. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble, mounted on a donkey. You see, Jesus 
is the righteous one. He is the one who is righteous. He is perfect before God. He has kept God's law perfectly. This is what we call theologically the active obedience of Christ. That every day of Jesus' life, he obeyed the law of God. In action, in word, and even in thought. There was not one occasion, not one time that Jesus slipped. Everything that he did was to the glory of God. He lived a perfect life and merited the blessing of his Father. This is crucial for us because Zechariah then reminds us that Jesus comes with salvation. Jesus is the one who has salvation. And we have to understand that it's not just because of who Jesus is, God himself, that he has salvation. It's because of what Jesus has done that he has salvation. He had kept the law of God. He had kept the covenant of works. He had obeyed every command. And he had done this perfectly. You see, Jesus is actually rebuking the crowd for its desire and its emphasis. This morning, look into your heart. Do you want Jesus as he is and as he holds himself out to be? Or do you wish that Jesus was someone else? Do you want him to do what you desire? Or do you rejoice in what he has done? When you come to Jesus, he is sovereign, not you. John then concludes with responses from three groups of people. Their responses tell us a lot about people and therefore a lot about ourselves. These three are the disciples, the crowd, and the Pharisees. Let's begin with the disciples. John makes this amazing statement in verse 16. He says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered. Now, it's hard to even imagine how this could be the case. Had they all been asleep? Did they ever listen to Jesus when he was talking? Because you'll recall Jesus told them right before he came to Jerusalem what was going on and why this was to happen. He had told them over and over again that he would suffer and die. But I think what we see here is something that can encourage us. The disciples were caught up in the everyday. They failed to see the big picture. They weren't paying attention. I, I believe that perhaps the only reason the disciples didn't say to Jesus, we don't get it, you're not supposed to die, is because they saw how he responded to Peter when he did. But they're saying to themselves, this can't possibly lead to our Lord's death. Look at how powerful he is. He's raising the dead. Look at how the people are behind him. And he's so good and glorious. Why wouldn't anyone love him? Why won't everyone come behind him? That's what they're thinking. They're not thinking about the bigger picture. 
And if we're honest about it, we can be like that, can't we? We get so busy with what's in front of us that we don't see the big picture. We don't see what God's doing in our lives. We don't see what He's doing in those around us, and we fail to take encouragement and instruction from it. We're simply trying to put one foot in front of the other. We're too busy looking down that we're not looking up. Brothers and sisters, it takes effort to see God at work. And once we know that He is at work in our lives, we need to remember that. And we need to tell others. Then secondly, we see the crowd. John has described a crowd around Jesus several times. There's a crowd in verse 9, a crowd in verse 12, and a crowd in verse 17. It does appear that the crowd that is in verse 9 is distinct from the later crowd. There's probably a mingling, an overlap. But there's a very large crowd in the city. And this crowd was driven by a desire to see something spectacular. They want to see Lazarus. They want to have their needs, their needs met. Now this is not unlike most of the people who encounter Jesus. And so they come and they shout and they call Jesus a king. But why do they do this? Verse 18 gives us an answer. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. Now this should sound familiar to us. We've seen this before where John tells us that someone believed but they didn't really believe. Or that someone followed but they didn't really follow because they were only interested in the signs that Jesus had done. Only interested in what Jesus had done and how they could partake of it. There were two things that they saw. A conquering king and Lazarus. And these two things are related. Because you see, they saw Jesus as having power. And they wanted that power. They wanted it to be used for their benefit. That's what they're there for. Too often, we can be tempted to view Jesus as a means to an end. That's the way of the world. Jesus is not a means to a better marriage or a better family or a better business or closer relationships. Almost anyone is willing to take what they want from Jesus. If they think that Jesus offers them a benefit, they'll want it. But they won't submit to the true king. You can't have Jesus without having the king. When you come to Jesus, it is not to get something. It's to have him. He is the one who is of value. Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you want to be with him? That's what Jesus means to the believer. Then there's a third group. And they are angry. It's the Pharisees in verse 19. They have been plotting and scheming for some time. 
They want to destroy Jesus. And the irony here is that they view Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as a complete failure for themselves. Jesus' popularity and his entrance make them even more determined to get rid of him. If there was ever any doubt in their minds, it's settled now. They need to be rid of Jesus. They're ready to accept Judas's betrayal that will come. But their message of disgust is actually a message of hope. See what they say in verse 19. You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Their complaint was that the world had gone after Jesus. And in one sense, that is true. All we have to do is look at the church across the world. We here are a result of that, living thousands of years later and thousands of miles away from this place. But the truth is really the opposite. Jesus has gone after the world. He has sought out a people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Jesus has gone after the world. King Jesus is not accomplishing any small work. He is not looking for a small nation in a little part of the world. He has come for all his people. And that's why the gospel has reached throughout all the earth, to China, to India, to Africa, to South America, to Europe, to America, to Asia. We're a reflection of that here. I keep reminding you of how blessed we are to see the universal scope of the gospel by the many, many nations that are represented here in our midst at Christ Church. You see, this word is relevant for you and me today. Jesus has come for you. He is your king. But you don't get to elect him. And Jesus does not work for you. He is not the kind of king that you want him to be. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the righteous one who comes with salvation. And when you see him, you will fall down before him. Trust him with everything you are. When you believe in this king, he will save you. He will rescue you. And when he comes again, you will see him in all of his power and glory. Blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray.